Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Welcome to episode 10 of Offshoot with Carrie Nichols from the Nichols Company. Carrie is the co-founder and chief executive officer of the Nichols Company, a private lender who's originated over 500 loans without a single foreclosure, or loan loss. Carrie's experience, especially her underwriting expertise, is vast and she's incredibly intelligent. Listen for some of the nuggets that Carrie shares here, including hedging credit cycle risk by keeping loan terms short, putting underwriting ahead of origination as a central aspect of her company, how to be a real fiduciary, truly acting in the interests of your investors, using daily prayer to maintain awareness of the fact that money isn't a god, bring a true win-win mindset into every transaction, and find center before you walk into the office. Additionally, how some credit issues can be overlooked, but how character is not one of them, how speed and certainty of execution is a critical component of their value proposition, and how women can show up and thrive in the commercial real estate industry. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Offshoot. Today, I'm happy to welcome Carrie Nichols to the pod. Carrie's the co-founder and chief executive officer of the Nichols Company, where she is primarily responsible for loan origination, underwriting, and servicing. Carrie's 39 years in the commercial real estate industry, ranged from institutional permanent lending and large-scale bridge loans to small balance bank and private lending. The significant success Carrie and her husband, the other co-founder, have had with the Nichols Company comes after a good journey in the lending space. In the early 80s, just after graduating from USC, Carrie worked as a mortgage banker for the now-defunct John Burnham & Company. She then moved to the lender side with 13 years of loan origination and service to organizations like Heller Financial, Fremont Investment & Loan, and San Juan Business Credit. She then served as regional manager for their Daimler Chrysler Capital Services, originating 10 to $75 million bridge loans. As the Great Recession took hold, Don and Carrie went all in on the entrepreneurial journey that is the Nichols Company, where Carrie's now originated just under $900 million of debt from the Nichols Mortgage Fund, the $165 million investment vehicle that they've raised and over which they have full discretion. I've had the good fortune to do a fair amount of business with the Nichols Company, and the questions we field as Carrie and her team underwrite an opportunity probe right into the heart of the issues, be that character, financial capability, or the underwriting assumptions attached to a deal. Nothing is getting by her, which is underscored by the fact that in the company's 14-year history, they've had zero loan losses. Carrie is sharp, and it's a real pleasure to have her on the show. Carrie, welcome to Offshoot. To get started, could you just tell me a bit about yourself and the Nichols Company? Yes, I, as you said, I, uh, I actually I grew up in a um, blue collar family um, outside of Los Angeles in Ventura County. Uh, I was the first person in my family 
to graduate from college. I went to USC on a full scholarship. Um, and then, uh, and I fell into, really fell into um, business with a degree in, um, an emphasis in real estate finance. How boring is that? But um, once I started, I was hired by John Burnman Company, as you said, uh, down in Orange County. And I absolutely love the business. I, I love the deal business. I love figuring out every piece of real estate because it all stands on its own. And I count myself as, as really fortunate uh, to have fallen into it. I was actually thinking of going to law school, but um, I didn't have the money to afford that. And I just fell in love with a transactional real estate business. Uh, I met my husband, uh, who's also my business partner, um, founder, uh, co-founder of Nichols Mortgage Fund. Uh, at that time, he was a competing um, mortgage banker with the Allison Company. And like I like to say, the competition got friendly. And <laughs> Don went on, and uh, uh, after we got married in 1985, he went on and formed a development company, was builder developer for some years until the uh, recession of the early 90s. Uh, took that down and I went on and became a lender and really fell in love with the structured finance type of lending uh, because that's a real thing where you have to put always put the puzzle together. No two days are ever the same. Um, I, I got uh, kind of bored with just permanent financing, which was very much everything's in the box, but it certainly taught me all of the institutional skills that I needed to know um, for what became my career, because I understand what my exit is, how permanent uh, lenders are looking at things. I understand when you need to have uh, certain third parties and, and when they aren't so important. So I, I know when I can, I can let go on things. So nothing really stays in a box uh, around here. So, um, I, most of the companies I worked for, as you just named, were uh, all credit companies, and we were doing large 10 to $80 million transactions, structured finance, highly leveraged, um, and I brought that lending philosophy to the fund when we founded it in 2007. Um, we initially, we had, we had it. We were bringing in small chunks of capital, uh, and so our loans had to mirror that. And then as, as we started to grow, we had larger amounts of capital to deal with. And really today, if you looked at the portfolio, you'd say that it's a mini credit company portfolio. Excellent. And, and just at the very beginning, when you talk about uh, John Burnham, like mm -hmm. what had you go that way? Was there something in particular that you know, an uncle, a grandfather, like what had you kind of initially hold your hand up and say, hey, I'm interested in commercial real estate? Well, I had a degree in uh, real estate, um, an emphasis in real estate finance. So I knew I was going real estate. And, you know, I think it was just the opportunities that hit me. I, I interviewed with numerous groups, but um, it was pretty much all of the opportunities in on the finance side that hit me. Yeah. And, and so was there something, I guess, I'm just trying to figure out how you ended up with real estate. I, mean, I guess maybe in college at some point oh. you would have decided. 
Yeah, that, that is a good question. Because I often say I was, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because I fell into something that I really simply love. Um, I don't think it was so intentional. I think I just started taking some classes and I, I just liked it a lot. And yeah. then I decided to do an emphasis in it. And then when you guys decided to start the Nichols company, I mean, it was right at, um, I mean, it was right at the beginning, if I'm not mistaken, of the Great Recession. Is is that correct? It was. Yeah. It so what had you guys do that? Do that. Um, we were working with La Jolla loans. First of all, back in the early 2000s, a lot of people would approach us and say, if you ever find a good deal, I, I would like to invest with you. And we were actually brokering at the time. And we started thinking, gosh, that, that's an interesting thought. Why are so many people approaching us on this? Um, and then we got an opportunity to work for La Jolla Loans. Don was president of it. That's down in San Diego. And I was an originator. And we saw, we started to learn that side of the business. And we thought there was a real opportunity in founding a fund as opposed to they were fractionalized investments. And we just decided that that, that would be a great way to go. And 2007, I think, was right before the crash of 2008. So we. Right, perfect timing. A little peaky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, they might right now feel a little bit that way. Uh, but it, it, it seemed like. We wanted to carve our own destiny too. I think we've worked for people for long enough that we, you know, not to say anything negative about anybody that we've worked for, but um, we have our own opinions on how we thought things should be done and wanted to carve our own destiny. So that was a lot of it. And to this day, uh, as you said, we retain, we have full discretion and we have been approached by various institutions to put in large chunks of capital, but they always want a look at everything that we do. And my comment on that is I, um, I'm not selling my soul. I've, I've sold my soul for all these years to, to uh, always perform and get things done and uh, honor my commitments with the various organizations that I worked for. Uh, and I just want to do it my own way. So that kind of is, uh, is kind of the backbone to why we did this. Yeah, that's great. No, and I, I understand it very well having, done a lot of business with you guys through the years. Um, what's happening in the business right now? What are you guys seeing? What challenges are you facing? Well, we're as fast as we're putting new loans on the books, they're rolling off. There's so much capital right now, as everybody knows, the, the markets are just awash in capital. So it's, we're, this year we'll be, uh, we'll do 25% more loan volume than we did last year and we've been running about 25% increases every year for the past few years, but it's not without a lot of work um, and a, a lot of disappointments that have kind of come out of left field that we didn't expect with either uh, private individuals themselves getting very, very aggressive in the debt space or our uh, competition that's, that's um, cut their pricing severely. We're retaining our pricing but um, it's it's with a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, asset types, you know, investment minimum, maximum, ge geographic focus, primary, secondary markets, development, entitlement for those guys 
who might be listening that could consider you guys as a lending source? You know, what's mm-hmm. in the strike zone and what's a, an easy pass? Yeah, we're, you know, two to $20 million. It's all short term, twelve typically 12 months with extension options, bridge loans and ground up construction loans. The thing that we always look at that's key is how are we going to get out of the deal? What's our exit? These are business plans that we're financing and we're always looking at the uh, sponsor's ability to execute that business plan. We're solely in California um, because those are the markets that we know. We always make the joke about uh, certain deals need an out-of-state lender and we don't want to be that out-of-state lender. Right. Well, look, I've I've done a fair bit of business with the Nichols company over the years. I think I can say objectively, there are deals which Nichols has done, which many other lenders would look at and say, that's too risky, we're a pass. And that's not uh, an error or any slip on Nichols credit underwriting. Quite the contrary, I think you guys are really good at assessing risk um, and and landing. Well, the track record speaks for itself, but um, you know, one sort of window into that, and there are lots, uh, is you guys are less constrained by loan to cost, right? The convention in the marketplace is perhaps, you know, 65% loan to cost, 75% loan to value. And I know there are circumstances where Nichols has gone rather high on a loan-to-cost perspective with a real focus on LTV, which I think is commercial, it's pragmatic, it's logical, it's rational, et cetera. Um, how do you guys view, you know, the? there are a lot of conventions in the lending space that I think are held as tried and true and, and sort of gospel. And I see you guys come in fairly regularly and be like, no, we can do that. Um, how do you guys... How do you do that, and and why doesn't the competition do it? What I like to say is underwriting is our core competency. When I was with the credit companies, we didn't get appraisals. The originators uh, who were expected to source and underwrite, fully underwrite themselves. All of the transactions, all of those companies were unregulated as well. Um, so I really learned a lot of uh, appraisal slash underwriting skills. And in fact, uh, I'm one course narrative report away from uh, being an MAI. So that's that's where I really formed very, very good underwriting skills. And I brought that philosophy to the fund. Uh, yes, we. that's why you would come to me is I've even done 100% of cost loans. If we underwrite to where the value is at the end of the day, as we really believe in the value. Um, so I'm I can, I'm more expensive. I, I'm six to ten percent, middle of the road, eight percent, and two points per year. But if I can get you up into the 80, 90 percent, sometimes even 100 percent loan to cost, that makes a lot of sense because I'm an inexpensive form of equity. You don't have to give a piece of your deal away. And more importantly, you don't have to lose control of your deal. So that's that's really how we compete. We roll up our sleeves and we figure each transaction out. It stands on its own. A couple of years ago, we brought in Josh Sudi, who is an MAI and was at CB 
RE for 17 years in the valuation division. He ran a top valuation team and he had done appraisal work for me for five years before I hired him. And he either actually did the work or he found the right person in the system to do the work who really understood the product type and the market that we were talking about. And I, I think that that shows how important underwriting is to us and also why we've never uh, foreclosed on a loan, um, never lost uh, any, any money on a loan and always got positive interest because we bring that discipline. A lot of groups might have, um, when they went to expand the platform, the first hire might have been in originations, but what we needed was somebody to help us go through the transactions more rapidly and, and more accurately and be able to bottom line things really well, which is what Josh is able to do today for us. Uh, he knows so many people, so many appraisers that he can, he, he makes the bottom line call all the time. So we can get a transaction in and within an hour, it's a yes, or yes, this has legs on it, or no, this isn't going to work for us. So. And how do you guys spot out, uh, opportunity? What what channels are productive for you in terms of just deal flow? It, it's really through the brokerage community. Um, Although when, once they come in, we about 65 to 70% of our sponsors are repeat sponsors, but also 65 to 70% of our uh, uh, brokers are, are repeat brokers. 65 to 70% of the business that's brought in has a broker attached to it, as is it repeat business. So that's an interesting statistic, I, I think. Throughout the years with the credit companies I worked for, because we were uh, transactional lenders, I developed very deep uh, clientele base with uh, the mortgage banking, mortgage brokerage community. So that continues to be our, our, our main source. I like to work through them because, like yourself, Kevin, because you're the middleman, you can say things. I can say things to you and the sponsor can say things to you that it's more difficult for us to say to each other. Um, plus when you go directly, the borrowers, they don't really understand how to package themselves up. And we're essentially having to do a lot more work and a lot more detective work. And, and I just think the brokerage community really adds a lot to the transaction. You're like knocking down all my questions before I can ask them. <laughs> um, so look, let's let's talk big picture because you started this um, with the notion that you know there's a lot of capital in the marketplace, and um, we certainly are aware of kind of the national um, trends in terms of pumping liquidity into the system. Um, I was just talking to a lender the other day who's also a private lender, but on a smaller scale than Nichols, they have primarily been active in the fix and flip space or um, you know, single family sort of SFR uh, construction financing. And you know, they've historically been a 9% and, and higher rate and a couple points, but at what I would describe as kind of prudent leverage, which would be you know, maybe 70% or, or below. And this is all just anecdotal in, in a way to kind of bring color to the conversation of the credit cycle. Uh, he's telling me that some of the Wall Street backed guys in the same space are now doing 90% loan to cost on the acquisition of fix and flips and 100% of the improvement costs. So net net, call it 
92, 95% loan to cost. Again, this would be for like a single family flipper um, at maybe eight and two, eight and one. And they're just kind of like pencils down. They don't know how to even address like what's happening in terms of the the underwriting standards and the, the leverage and the pricing. Uh, and on the bridge lending side, kind of a joke around the office is like, oh, look, another bridge lender. Um, there just seem to be proliferating. So I'm curious, you know, where do you where do you guys think we are in the in the big picture of, of credit cycles? And, you know, as everybody as debt proliferates, all the loans that were made previously look good because there's another lender to take it out. But mm-hmm. that doesn't that music doesn't always play. I, mean, I know you guys are, you know, sort of large cycle thinkers, but I'm curious what you, what your thinking is today. You know, we're it's worth saying we're like mid November 2021, and who knows what's around the corner. But what are you guys thinking today in that regard? For sure. So one thing I'll say is that that's one of the reasons that we've maintained the discipline of our our loans being all short term, meaning 12 months typically with extension options. Sometimes we'll do a 24 month um, because we don't want to have to peek around the corner too much. I think that's where you get yourself in trouble. Um, So, for example, I'm um, cautious on some construction, uh, ground up construction business plans that are going to be three years because I don't really know what situation we're going to be in in three years. Um, I Once this, finally, there is going to be a recession that's going to come. I'm not sure when it's coming. We keep thinking that for, for years. We've all been saying that. Um, it will be my fifth recession of my career. And I feel like every time we've gone through these, everybody says, well, it's going to be different this time. Um, but you know, the really bad ones that we've gone through, I mean, there's been a couple of blips like the one in, um, the, the tech blip in, in the early two thousands, but there's certainly the nineties and then the, the great recession of 2008. Um, so I, I'm always peeking around and wondering what is going, what is going to, to push it over because it does definitely feel frothy. Um, I'm looking at all of these, uh, all the 1031 exchanges and you can almost say i mean that's really not those aren't purely driven by economics so so that kind of concerns me um so we're just i'm I'm not doing 36 month business plans anymore i'm i primarily like the business plans that are 12 months and i can see how i can get in and i can get out uh, rather quickly before things change too much um, I, I certainly think inflation, I, I, obviously we're seeing inflation now. I think probably some of it is transitory, but so much money is being poured into the market by the government that um, it's, it's, it's very concerning to me. Um, because I don't, I, I think ultimately that's good for, for real estate. And I think, you know, rents will go up and as, as uh, interest rates and caps go up, but there's certainly going to be some dislocation. So did that answer your question? Well, I mean, I, I think I think we're getting it in front of us. <clears throat> so another, uh, you know, ang- <clears throat> excuse me, another angle on all of that um, you mentioned is money supply, right? So I've I've heard said that twenty five percent of the money that's in circulation now was created within the last twelve months. And if you look at a chart on the Fred yeah. charts, uh, you know, it's it's the proverbial hockey stick, sort of a slow yeah. ramp. And then COVID happened and we've just pumped trillions of dollars into the economy. So 
I, I, just prior to this, I looked up a couple, you know, up-to-date numbers to make sure this is mostly accurate. There's $29 trillion of national debt on a $21 trillion uh, gross national product and, or gross domestic product. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of zeitgeist, which is like, well, interest rates have to go up. So let's just posit that they go to 5%, which would only be three and a half points higher than where the 10 year is now. Right. That takes your debt service to $1.4 trillion, which is equivalent to the cost of the federal healthcare budget and the federal defense budget. It's 22% of our $16 trillion budget. So how do, how do we do that? I mean, how do we do that? Right. And part of what I, I mean, I don't have these answers. I can ask the questions that, uh, that seems unlikely. The Fed's not going to tell you that they're not going to raise interest rates because it's going to break the country. But are they going to raise interest rates in the face of $1.5 trillion of debt service? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know if, if, and if I had all the answers to all of this, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Totally. And do you guys have views on cap rates then? At least at least that uh, well, sort know, of aspect of it? I've been cap rates forever for, you know, half a percent in our underwriting. And we just keep seeing them going down. So, again, fortunately, I'm not doing, I'm not doing five-year loans where I really have to nail this i'm just doing and again and and we're like we really like the triple net space uh triple net retail space because those those that you you build it and you sell it it's a quick turnaround situation so i i am still using a little bit of of a cap rate increase but um i'm not so i have a couple to i have on a, recently on a few deals i've I just said, you know what? I think if anything, this is going down right now, so I'm just going to leave it right where it's at. It's a deal by deal decision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I really get the hedge. I mean, keeping it short term, you are insulated from some of these issues. That's for sure. Yeah. We're seeing all of these entities, these funds, these vehicles. Your competitors, right? Um, they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like the 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 Blackstone REIT, I think now is well. I'm sure that this number's out of date. It's got to be bigger by now. It was like 1.7 billion dollars. Strata, the San Diego company, I just saw a notice yesterday. Just sold 15,500 units to Colony for their REIT. Um, yeah, these vehicles are just consuming the world. Real estate as an asset class is is here to stay. The allocations mm -hmm. to real estate are increasing. Your historic financial advisor who would tell you, you know, sixty percent bonds, forty or sorry, sixty percent equities, forty percent bonds is now saying, well, you need to have ten percent in real estate and ten percent in alternatives. And you know, those those dollars across the entirety of the investing population are massive. Um, and it seems to me that the little deals, which, you know, in, in the world of that, uh, a two or 12 or $20 million project is a very small deal. Um, they're kind of getting left behind. Uh, just, I wonder what your guys view is of the marketplace as the bigger guys continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, we intentionally are small because 
we think that if you if you grow larger, you lose control, and that's where you start having problems. So we're, we're, we we do have a uh, plan to take the our um, overall assets under management to about 250 million is the biggest size that we think we can we can really handle with this platform. We've toyed with going out of state, but uh, you, the only way you do that is you get people that are really really sound in those markets. Um, and really know those markets like the back of their hands. Um, it, it's harder that the, I think we are a bit under the radar screen because the larger everybody else grows, they, they've got to really do the big deals to keep feeding the animal. Um, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't really feel like it this year. There's still, I saw a lot of competitors that have, are, are really letting a lot of underwriting standards go. Um, like I say, we're, we'll do 25% more, but it's not without a lot of work. But I do think as a general uh, practice, us being in that two to $20 million space has served us well because that space is under the radar of a lot of groups. Yeah, less efficient pricing and you can actually yeah. create value. Exactly. Yeah. The fact that I'm still getting mostly 8%, on um, these loans is in two points per year is really kind of a miracle, I think. It's because of our reputation that we've built up. They know, they know that if we say we'll do it, we'll do it. Well, I also think, to be candid, it's the value, right? You're creating value for the yeah. borrower. If you're going to 85, 90, yeah. 95% Definitely. of cost, yeah, right. there's a huge value proposition there. Mm -hmm. So when you guys, um, you know, kind of pivot away from that discussion of the the smaller funds versus the bigger funds, the value proposition. Um, another thing I see in terms of the borrower profile, right? If you're a borrower who, let's just say, is going to Blackstone, the bias to um, track record, financial wherewithal, in particular financial wherewithal, meaning your, your credit worthiness, uh, global cash flow, net worth, liquidity, goes really high. Um, and, it, you know, the, I think previously demonstrated financial success is a pretty good proxy for credit worthiness. What is your net worth? What is your liquidity? What's your recent transactional past? Um, but there are also the newer, uh, you know, quote unquote, emerging manager guys who really do have the plot, but for some reason or another may not have um, net worth, liquidity, and, and another you know, basket of collateral that might be available um, for that lending risk. Now, I know as a lender, you're you're not in the business of taking equity risk, and you're underwriting that exit, as you alluded to in the beginning. But how do you guys uh, assess the? You know, if you take like the five C's of credit, character being one, and capital being the other, um, that balance sheet borrower generally comes up as stronger than uh, the character of an emerging manager who might not have that balance sheet, um, how do you guys play in that space? How do you look at the potentially undercapitalized but capable borrower? Well, you know, when we were coming out of the Great Recession, it was, it was pretty easy to understand if somebody wasn't so capitalized. Um, at this point, it's, it's, it's a little bit odd because what have they been doing since, you know, We've been on such a, a big run, but it, in general, if they have the really have the the 
the knowledge. I believe that they can execute the business plan, which in this scenario means they would have been with somebody else and now they're breaking out and they're doing it on their own. Um, yeah, we certainly have those borrowers because we're attractive with our leverage. Um, so I, I'm just, I look at a minimum of one-to-one -one on the uh, net worth to loan amount and 10% liquidity. You know, we, 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 our budgets are, uh, we build up enough of a budget so that we really don't have to worry unless there's something cataclysmic hits us uh, of running out of interest reserve. Um, so we, so we always build that up. So because of that, and if I'm comfortable that we do have the cost nailed down correctly, uh, and they know what they're doing and we do, you know, we do have a good, a, a good budget. Uh, I, I'll, I'll turn my head to, to some of that weakness on the financial side. Character, do you have... is, pardon me? No, go ahead. Character is, is more important to me than than the credit worthiness or financial wherewithal. Bad credit isn't certainly isn't good. Um, financial wherewithal is less important than uh, character. So I, you know, since we founded the fund in 2007, there's only five transactions that we didn't end up closing on when the sponsor had executed the application. And all of those were because of character issues that were revealed in the application process that we couldn't have surfaced until we were actually under application. So. And how often are your borrowers going to the other side if, if uh, let's just put a hypothetical $100 million guy up, he's got $10 million liquid, mm -hmm. um, he's coming to Nichols and paying 8% and two points mm -hmm. um, because there's a fit. How often mm -hmm. is that the borrower profile? Yeah, it happens, but it's not it, it's not 50% of my portfolio for certain. Um, it, that happens when they don't want to lose an opportunity. Uh, they, they are bankable and do have bank relationships. I would say banks are my primary competitor. If they have bankable relationships and they trust that the bank is going to be able to get it done um, within the time frame, then of course they'll go to the bank. But if they're afraid they're going to lose the opportunity, then that's that's where I show where you guys step in. Yep. Because I deliver certainty of execution and um, speed. And so. do you perceive any dysfunction in the? This is this is pretty much a softball, but in the banking community. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so we actually call um, the. <laughs> The, all, all the banking regulations, the Nichols Mortgage Fund Full Employment Act. Right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a deal right now. Um, it's going to Wells Fargo. Uh, I mean, this is the, the classic stuff. You've got uh, three parcels that have owned for four years. The design development, schematic design, construction drawings, grading permit, all ready to be pulled um, the owner is into it for 2.8 million of equity. There's a $3 million, uh, senior debt piece, and they're arguing for a million dollar lift in the value of the land with an appraised value. That's, mm. you know, in the mid sevens, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're, they're going in at 
5.5 million. Uh, and Wells is, you know, having a hard time trying to figure out if, <laughs> if that equity is actually in the deal. So, yes. Right. The Nichols yeah. Employment Act. I like that it. is our full employment act. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to the fund size, let's let's go through. Look, for those who have tried to go create a discretionary fund, uh, or I should say it this way, many who try do not succeed. Getting dollars in the door, blind pools of discretionary capital is very difficult. Um, and congratulations to you guys for getting it done. Whether you go institutional, which I just heard you uh, say, you, you know, even though that door is now open, you, Nichols isn't interested in it, or you go private, it's a long road. It takes a lot of, um, well, why don't you tell me what it takes? Because it, it's it's very difficult. Uh, I wonder what you guys attribute your success to in that regard. Yeah, it, it's a very difficult road. And I often say that if we had known how difficult it was going to be, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have done it. But now that we're on the other side, uh, obviously we're reaping the rewards from from all of that. It, it's just one foot in front of another. Um, you know, I, I oversee the whole um, loan side of the business from the originations down to the, the, the draws and the servicing and closing and all of that. Um, Don oversees the investment capital side of the business and he often says that when he when we founded the fund he switched businesses um, because it became a it, it wasn't every day about financing real estate it's a it's you know he became a i guess essentially you would say a salesman um for this investment capital and fortunately we have such deep relationships from all of our years in the real estate community that really knew us and knew how we think about things that we were one foot in front of it, the other uh, able to able to bring in all of these individuals we now have 225 uh, member accounts um, and it and it is all family friends some charitable trusts and you'd be very surprised at the percentage of them that is real estate commercial real estate based. Uh, so that's kind of nice because we can always, they can be a bottom line call for us. Um, there's certain of them that have pretty deep experience in, in different areas. But yeah, that's been been difficult along the way. We've had, you know, uh, for us, somebody just putting in $50 million would have been fabulous. But uh, just, you know, I, I just need a, a look at every single deal. And I knew what that meant because the magic of what we do is we can immediately say yes or no. Our yeses are yes, our noes are no. The min minute I have to go to somebody else to get approval, it, it just slows the whole um, the whole operation down and takes away everything that we are. And somebody told us at the very start, who was also doing a fund um, and had sold out and was bringing in institutional capital and having to answer to them uh somebody we respect i will say who, who was he said if you can keep this all to yourself and retain full discretion that's absolutely going to be the way to go so we've retained that philosophy 
And and you've kept a small team. You mentioned that. Why why stay small? Why stay? I mean, what is the total headcount now? It's less than less than twelve. Yeah, there's seven of us. Okay. Um, yeah, we've kept it kept it small because I think you start to lose things when when you get too big. Um, we we're a I'd say small but mighty team. We're very cohesive. Uh, I run a meeting with the staff every single morning and we go through we start out with capital and what are the capital needs between investors and uh, our bank western alliance bank provides our line of credit uh, we talk about what's going on with that then we move on to existing loans we go through the whole portfolio uh just calling out every loan and if anybody any one of us knows anything about that um they'll pipe up so that the whole team is is brought current every single day um and then of course you know of course you got loans that we we don't have any um any bad loans no 30-day defaults or everything's current but um there's certain loans that we're a little concerned about and we talk those through those take a little longer and make a game plan every day and then uh we move on to business that's in closing uh because there's always plenty of pieces going on with that and then uh, business that's not in closing yet, um, and then kind of administrative. So that's our agenda every morning, and I think that that's really why we're able to um, operate with just seven people. And what about the investor relations side of it? I mean, you're saying there's 225 folks, but um, how do you how do you keep them apprised of what's happening? What's the cadence? What's the kind of deliverable that they have come to expect? I write an investor update once a month. We make monthly distributions. I write that investor update um, and uh, Don actually sends it out. But every month, every investor gets an update of exactly where the portfolio is. So we're, we're touching them. Uh, you'd be surprised when that goes out, how much capital. That's when, that's when capital starts coming in. It's kind of funny now that we're at this stage, and I, I probably should have said it, earlier when you were asking me that question, um, it, 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 initially every every single investor, that just really meant something when somebody put in money in the fund. Now money just keeps just dropping into our laps, so to speak. Um, and Don and I look at those, the list and we say, wow, we don't even know who some of these people are anymore. We used to know every single one of them, but mm -hmm. now, now, we, now we don't even know who they are because, you know, our best way of getting businesses or investment capital is through the referrals. Um, so we do that. We do an annual report every year. We have an annual uh, holiday party for all of our investors and then our um, borrowers and brokers that have brought us business. Um, and actually, so many of our investors are from this immediate community that, as I tell the staff often, Don and I, we, we work all weekend long. We just, we run into people everywhere. We uh, right. sometimes kind of funny. I, I say, you know, we can't get away from anybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> and believe me, they were chasing us down when, when COVID, when the, the lockdown March, 2020. Oh, we, wherever we'd run in, people were chasing us down. <laughs> What's going on with the portfolio? Yeah. yeah. It's fine. No problem. Well, look, after 14 years, what are you guys most proud of? What's the what's the one thing that you look back on with, uh, well, maybe not one, but maybe one of the things you look back on with a lot of pride? Um, 
never losing any money, no foreclosures. Wow. And always a return on every single loan. We've always gotten an uh, interest rate. Maybe it, in one loan, it was 14 at the very beginning. I can't believe 14% interest rate. And we ended up, um, we got all our money back, but at 4% return on that. So I didn't realize that no loan losses also equated to no foreclosures. I would have figured that. Yeah. What it's 500 and something transactions. Yeah. Yeah. No I would have figured there was a foreclosure or two in yeah. there somewhere. No foreclosures. We're not alone to own. We want, everybody wants to sleep at night. That's fantastic. And I don't want a back shop that's, you know, busy with that. Absolutely. Right. That's kryptonite. If you have to start becoming asset managers. Exactly. Um, well, this if we shift over to the personal side, and you and I would have had some co uh, conversations about this in the past, uh, you know, you guys have gone from start to success. You've already alluded to the fact that I'm certain there's some institution out there saying, wait, you guys are delivering net, say, six and a half returns to your investors over this time period. Like, here's 100 million, here's 200, here's 300, because they probably can't find those risk adjusted returns easily in the broader marketplace. Um, how do you say no? How do you say no to that, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing? I know Don pretty well also, and I, I think he's got a similar affliction to me in that, you know, a lot of, th a lot of things will catch his attention and um, mm -hmm. they look persuasively interesting and compelling. Mm -hmm. And my, one like me anyway, would be like, Hey, let's go do that. We can do that too. And I've watched you guys for now 14 years, just hold the course. And, um, I'm curious how that shows up for you. Yeah. Well, that gets back to, you know, not wanting to sell my soul. Um, I really, really love what I do. You're right. Don and I are, you know, we're having that conversation. Eventually we, you know, we, we can't do this forever. Um, so we're figuring out what exactly we'll, we would do if it would be a um, employee buyout situation or if we would uh, sell off to an institution where I, you know, I, I would, I would be the one that would be retained for a period of time to run the portfolio um, and, and to, you know, originate. And that, that's how you bring our brand to it is, you've got to have some overlap. Um, so I'm not saying that we're definitely wouldn't do that, but you know, we're looking at all those possibilities right now. Yeah. But I know we would have had conversations about, you know, even things that are outside of the day to day, right? Oh. You, you guys are capable. Like there's smart people with lots of money who see somebody like you and say, Hey, well, couldn't we also do this? And yes. can't we stand up another business? Yes. Yes. We've looked at, um, having an equity fund. Um, you could probably say we kind of do have an equity fund because our debt is so highly leveraged, but, um, we've looked at doing that, but we just, uh, felt like we would, we could do service to either one of them. We just really need to focus and stick to our knitting and do what we do best, which is debt. That's that's probably been the, the biggest opportunity that we've said, eh, should, should we get distracted with that? Uh, you know, we've also thought about uh, starting another fund and having different buckets. Um, but then you get into a situation with, 
you know, which deal do you give to, to which fund? That's why we uh, recently took the fund size of investment capital up to 200 million um, so that we could maintain a diversification versus, and, and that's why our investors approved it because they saw that, that, that if, if we had a different fund, then we we're gonna be in a situation which deal goes into which bucket. So. Is that easy for you to say no to those opportunities? Um, it's probably easier for me than it is for Don, as you pointed out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the power couple right there. I can see him going, honey, come on, come look yeah, at this. This exactly. is amazing. We have, um, we're, we're opposites and we have complementary skills. In fact, we had an employment a consultant look at the whole team at one point and she said, uh, that we are the, um, our personalities are hundred percent the, the best, um, business partners that you could have and hundred percent, the best marriage partners you could have. So I don't know how I fell into that one, but I did. <laughs> we'll take it. Huh? That's fantastic. I'll take it. <laughs> um, daily routines. I kind of look at the start of my days and say, okay, uh, if I can get my head in the arena and kind of get grounded, understand where I'm at, who I want to be, um, as you know, a son or a father, a friend, a citizen, business person. Um, you know, that includes a meditation, looking at vision board, reading through maybe annual quarterly goals, stuff like that. It's not a extensive process, but I try to run a bit of a, routine in the morning to hopefully get me where if I can start there, win the day, then, you know, what is life, but a whole series of days, which hopefully we can come out better than worse, uh, day after day. I wonder f for you, if there are any, um, you know, personal routines or habits or rituals, anything that kind of helps you sharpen the saw and stay in the game, stay on top of your, your vision and your team. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, that's really important to me. I have a whole, I have a whole morning routine. <laughs> I, uh, um, I am a, Don and I are, are uh, Catholic Christians. Our faith is very important to us. And I start every morning with a cup of coffee and I do morning prayer. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that really grounds me for the day. It reminds me that there's something bigger than me, um, that money isn't my God. And it informs me as to how I approach everybody in that I am facing all day long between, uh, investors, borrowers, brokers, employees. Um, it, it, I'm, we are very much, uh, it's everybody's important. Um, and we want all of our transactions to be win-win transactions. It's not my, my win is your loss. That, that, that is a loss for both of us that ends up like that. It, sh it should be a win-win transaction. And that's how both Don and I approach life. It's really important. I, uh, exercise every morning. That's important to me. I have a wonderful, um, well, I have at home gym equipment and a trainer that 
now thanks to COVID, um, I do over a Zoom call. Um, I do that three days a week and every day I, I walk. We live in a, I'm uh, fortunate to live in a gorgeous neighborhood on Newport Harbor and there's a, a couple private beaches where I walk around the neighborhood and I see the harbor and uh, it's, it's a lovely walk and that really grounds me for the day. Because as I always say, once I get to the office, I don't know when I'm going to get out and I don't know what's going to be facing me during the day. And in a perfect morning, I'll practice my piano also. I'm a classical pianist and <laughs> I really enjoy that. But that doesn't always happen. I never knew that about you. That's fantastic. Look, this bounces around a little bit. Um, but what about principles, right? Like you just you just portrayed one there in that you like every transaction to be uh, a win-win exchange. Um, early in your career, perhaps you've picked up some from mentors or other relationships, two examples that I can put up to just kind of get us in the arena, if you will. Um, I remember the founder of a debt fund up in Idaho, I'll just say that, and people who know will figure out who that was, uh, said to me, there's a difference between money and my money, and that always stuck. Um, and then another one I've heard is, you know, tell me how you're paid, and I'll tell you how you perform. There are a few things like that that I carry with me on kind of a regular basis. I wonder if there are any principles that um, guide your decision-making and, and sort of metering out of opportunity. Well, I had a mentor when I was with um, Daimler Chrysler Capital Services, its regional manager, um, Greg Oleka, who really, uh, he was a very, very honorable man, and his word was his word. Uh, his fiduciary responsibility was very important to him. And I think that that's where I really learned, um, really role modeled after him in his um, approach to, to lending and his responsibility to whoever he was working for. He was a very, um, he was hard, hard to work for. He expected a lot out of everybody that worked for him. But at his core, he supported you to absolutely to the end. And if you uh, if you brought in a transaction that he didn't think really was too great, uh, he would he he would support you on it and say never do that again. Or if you had done something, maybe you you cut the pricing or something like that. Okay, I'll support you on it because we said we were going to do it, um, but never do it again. And I've very much taken that philosophy to uh, running the fund. Um, and Which he, part of it being a true fiduciary and, and really meaning what you're doing, being being about what you're saying you're doing as a fiduciary or having that kind of harder edge if things go a little sideways? Uh, both. Uh, fiduciary is of utmost importance. I think that's why we, um, we have the track record that we have, uh, but the, but also um, yes, uh, I have. That's happened to me, and where things have been, we've, we've said something to a sponsor that I wouldn't have said, um, and 
unfortunately hasn't been so bad it was going to you know push us off the cliff or something but um what i will just say you know what i wouldn't have done it that way and this is why but since we've told them that we're going to honor our word and i can't think of specific examples right now but uh, typically, it is it it has been situations where it's actually harmful to us, um, but but we're we're going to honor that because that's the people that we are. Do you have any, um, if you will, favorite failures? Any things that have happened either at Nichols or in your previous career where, well, like I heard somebody say, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you expected. Um, yeah. Any of those yeah. that have yeah. maybe been valuable and yeah. worth reflecting on? Those things, you know, when, once those things happen, you, you, you're never going to do that again. That's right. The mentor I was just talking about, Greg Galeca, salt of the earth. Um, one time I had an apartment deal in Anaheim, and I know I'm, I'm wandering off a little bit, but I'll get back to the point. I had an apartment deal in Anaheim, and he had had a situation some point, someplace in Texas, where uh, road work had had blocked the access to the apartment building and it became a big, became a problem on it because the road work went on and on and on. And so he had me at the city of Anaheim doing an investigation to see if there was any potential road work from any of the major access highways into this particular infill location in Anaheim. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And so I always laugh at, people that at these certain situations and you say, you'll never do it again. Um, I character is one thing that I, um, every time I go down the road with a somewhat shady character, in my opinion, uh, it's, it's come to bite me. And I, I mean, I, I've ended up just having to tell certain sponsors when they're always trying to pull things over us. You know, this happens a lot on, on construction with, with what the real, there's the real budget that we, we have. We had one sponsor say to us that, um, accidentally somebody in his shops told us that there was the set of books that the sponsor, the, the lender's set of books and the sponsor's the set of books. There was two sets of books going. Um, and you know what I did? I just, I told him, you know, you, you've got to pay us off. That was a little bit to our detriment you one could say if you were if you were greedy about keeping the loan balances out but we we just didn't know what landmines were there for us with with that type of character so um that's been one thing and with the with the fund that i i just i will not anymore i will not convince myself that this is a good the, the property's good the business plan is good everything's good about it but i've got kind of this issue with this character of the sponsor that's a no-fly zone for me now and on that deal that you guys requested to be paid off did you mm -hmm. get paid off and do you we know did. how it how it yeah. ended yeah we sure did we got paid off and did the projects end okay uh i think finally yeah think finally. after some delays yes yeah exactly um so yeah you I didn't know that you play classical piano. I don't know if you know that I now have two um, little girls that are one and three. And um, I have a, I mean, to be totally candid with you, I have a great deal of respect for you. Um, and I'm, I'm also not blind to the fact that 
you operate in an industry that is 95% male. Um, I went to a cannabis uh, convention a couple years ago in Vegas and I was blown away. I was like, well, it was like half the room is female. And it's because I've just spent so many years in these commercial real estate rooms where it's all, it's all men in suits. Um, I, I just wonder what your experience of being a woman in this industry that for better or worse, and probably mostly for worse, um, is dominated by men. Like what I put it and said another way, like I'd be thrilled if my one or both of my two girls could find a way into the, this industry, the way that you have and, and have the kind of success that, that you have had. So, you know, what's been your experience and, and what thoughts do you have for other women who are coming up or even, you know, the ones that might be a generation or two behind? Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, being in, even in business school, I was typically the only woman in my classes. I think there, there was one other woman that I would see at points. Um, I, there was a woman in business club. I was actually president of that club. I think there were maybe 15 of us or something in that tiny little club in college. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've always, it, it is very much a, a man's world. And it's been interesting and it kind of surprises me, uh, continues to surprise me that there aren't more women in this business. And I still really haven't figured that out. It drives me a little bit crazy. Um, I've had, I, I never really experienced um, issues with it as I was um, working with the various lending institutions that I worked for. Uh, I didn't, I, I, I was always successful and I never really noticed that there was any issue with me being a woman um, that, you know, I wasn't getting transactions from brokers because of that, or I, I always felt a lot of respect from everybody. I will say that um, I think there is that, that, that glass ceiling thing that they talked about. I think that that is real. When Don and I partnered up in 2007, I was absolutely astounded at the number of men who would, who I had done business with throughout the years. And I knew that they respected me because I had always said, if I said I was going to deliver on something, I always delivered on it. Uh, what I said I'd do and in the time frame I said I would do it. Um, because again, my word is my word and I would kill myself to do that, which is the whole getting back to selling your soul part. You know, I would, I, I, I would be on the phone with all the companies I worked for were either in the Midwest or in um, the East Coast. And I'd be on the phone at very early hours in the morning with two little kids to make sure I got everything done with the home office um, before I drove the kids to school. Uh, and I'd stay up all night writing uh, loan summaries and uh, pre-screens and all that kind of stuff. Um, and since I'd always delivered, they, I had a great reputation. But when we founded the fund, all these men would call Dawn. It was like I all of a sudden became the wife. I lost my identity when we founded the fund. Uh, that's changed since, but it, it was a very, very odd situation. And I still, I still struggle with that. Even with uh, there's some of our investors who they they uh, it tends to be a a generational thing. I think it's um, probably typically guys that are 10 years, I don't know, five to 10 years older than me. Um, 
mostly guys my age, I, I, I don't have an under, I don't have that issue with. Um, but I don't know, I guess it's just, it's, it's stay the course, uh, is all I can say. Um, I recently, somebody said the nicest thing they've ever said to me in my entire life. Uh, I'm sure I'm exaggerating that. I'm sure my children and husband have said nice things, but, um, uh, there's a woman in our business who walked up to me and she said, Carrie, I just have to tell you, I have to thank you. She's probably 10 years younger than me. I have to thank you what you have done for women in this, in, in, in the real estate world. She said, you know, you have just got the best reputation. I have no idea who she'd talked to. I was just absolutely dumbfounded that, you know, she, she would say that or think that, um, because I'm basically just doing what I do. You know, I, I, I so I guess that's, that's my word word is stay the course. Uh, I was raised by a mother who hadn't gone to college and it was important to her that I have a career. She installed, instilled that in me. And so I think that thanks to my mother, I, I, I never thought twice about it. I was always one of those women that I just very much wanted to both, um, uh, have children and work and believed I could do it all and, 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 and do feel like I, I've done it all. Uh, so I guess I'd say stay the course and you got to be yourself and don't shortchange yourself. I think maybe some women shortchange themselves, uh, in that they don't think they can do the transactional side of our real estate finance business. So they stick to, you know, more the paperwork kind of side. I don't know. I still don't have it figured out, Kevin. I <laughs> look, so. it's a fascinating space. And what you said about that kind of bias to the patriarch in terms of your partnership with Don. Mm -hmm. Um, that's super interesting. I mean, what's the, what's the graceful response that, or is, uh, I don't how, how do you, what when are we faced doing? with that? What are you? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I haven't been too graceful. <laughs> I have to be honest. <laughs> and, and, um, and I've had to, you know, our employment consultant, she's actually, uh, one of her expertises is in, is in, uh, women. She's done a doctorate on, on this whole study of, of women. Uh, and she, she runs in an executive women's group that I'm part of. So she's, it's very important for her. And I, I've had to run to her a couple of times and say, Oh man, you won't believe what I just did. Um, I, one time an investor, it was in, in, in 2018 and there were, um, there wasn't a lot of transactions going on. If you remember, everybody was worried that the 1031 was going to be taken away and the market had kind of really gone to a lull and we were sitting on cash. This is before we had our line of credit and we were not getting loans and we weren't going to do bad loans. And we were with an investor and we're kind of explaining what was going on and you know, just saying everybody needs to be patient here. Uh, this is what's going on. This is, this is the concern and we're not going to do a bad loan. Um, and the investor said, well, I, I know how to fix this. How about I take, um, Don to a country club situation, a gym of a country club. And I said, you know, um, no, you, you would take me. I, I'm that's my side of the business, not, not Don. And he said, well, 
he, he can't go because you you can't go because it's a men's only club. Mm-hmm. And I was not happy with that and said so. So you might think that was an embarrassing thing. Or when I talked to her, my, um, my employment consultant friend about it, she said, you go, you know, you have to, you have to push back at certain times. Um, you, you just can't stand there and take it. But so that other times I'm, I'm trying to be more gracious about it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's a fine balance and, um, you know, I, I don't know, I can't comment on to the individual choices that any other women are making as it pertains to kind of being on the producer transactional side versus administrative. But, um, I'm always impressed with the professionals that choose your path. And, you know, I mean, candidly, I think you're a cut above, you know, your whole peer set in the same role. So, uh, appreciate the opportunity to work with you and, you you. know, kudos to the, the courage to go into a room, an industry, uh, full of men and, and come out, you know, at the top. I mean, it's really impressive. Thank you. Um, so just encourage your daughters. Don't let up. They can do anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I've got I've got a couple decades yeah, to prime them up. So <laughs> hopefully it, the path will will it won't be as rough of a path once once they get there. Yeah. Um, so look, a message to entrepreneurs. I mean, you've had a couple already, but if you if you zoom out, go back 14 years ago, you say, hey, well, Don and I just really kind of. Uh, I'm putting a little bit of a spin on this. We we were tired of working for other people. We wanted to, um, you know, blaze our own trail. Uh, you go out and you you say, well, hey, I didn't I didn't realize what we were getting into. If I knew it was going to be this hard, maybe I wouldn't have done it. Which I think is universal across entrepreneurs. By the way, everybody jumps mm-hmm. out of the airplane and then they go, holy shit, this is going to be a lot <laughs> different than I thought it was. Exactly. Um, but you know, what message might you have, especially to those? Uh, I, where I think you guys are truly unique, there's lots of, um, bridge lending shops that might have say an insurance company behind them. And and because of that, they lose the discretion you mentioned, or they might have an ultra high net guy behind them who just writes the checks or, um, there, there can be a whole array of like, they, they perhaps have an alliance with a hedge fund and that's their source of capital, uh, or they've gone the other path and actually put together that you know, institutional investment base, but for folks who have a vision of creating a discretionary fund and doing it, um, the organic heavy lift, which is to say, I'm not just going to go to the university of Northern Carolina, Charlotte and say, Hey, why don't you give us $75 million for a debt fund? Um, which by the way, they would say no, but, uh, yeah, what thoughts do you have or advice that might you lend to whether it's a debt oriented discretionary fund that's you know going out to be raised or perhaps it's just a multifamily developer or a build to rent guy or a guy who just wants to aggregate a bunch of single family rentals and he knows that the retail investor base could probably be rather happy with the return risk return profile that he can offer but he's got to start step one okay, let's go, let's go raise a fund one, one, two, three, four people at a time. What kind of advice might you have for folks on that trajectory that are thinking about 
you know, doing what you guys have pulled off. Yeah, it again, it's one foot in front of the other and, and just stick with it. As I say, if I know we wouldn't have stuck with it, but, <laughs> but it, it really is a just stick with it, stick with your vision. And I, I think that part of it was also uh, sticking with the doing what we do best, which is the debt and not letting ourselves get um, distracted along the way. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. um, what's on the horizon for you guys? I mean, I, you did allude to the fact that, you know, there's perhaps this, uh, maybe you've had uh, enough time in the commercial real estate space for, for now, but uh, what's on the horizon? What are you guys looking at? As far as loans are concerned, no, the, the, what the, we're doing with the business. Yeah, what you're doing with the business, what you see out there. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the answer is, uh, you know, just hold the course and keep keep winning with the way you're winning. But yeah, maybe it's not. We are holding holding the course, and like I said, we're our, our goal is to get this to 250 million, um, and we're um, every year we're we're increasing it, and and because it is short term as much as you put on the books, you're rolling off the books. So it's just like a, a slow rise in average assets under management. Um, but 250, we're not, we're, as far as product types go, I'm not really changing anything uh, yet. I think that once there is dislocation and we, we are in some sort of recession, I think that actually that's, it's good to be a private money lender because you can pivot relatively quickly and there's always, uh, there's always opportunity. It's just, you, you kind of got to go through that dislocation time. Uh, a lot of, a lot of private money lenders that were founded in the great recession uh, did really, really well because there were a lot of opportunistic plays that we all haven't seen in quite some time. Um, so I just think you have to have the wherewithal and hopefully not all the, uh, issues in your on, on your existing portfolio that would distract you from being able to take advantage of that right you have to have made enough good loans that when the disruption comes it doesn't yeah. derail your entire business I, I pride myself on the fact that when we, when we came into the COVID, the beginning of COVID and the lockdown uh, we had to hold our investors hands a lot but we kept saying we have we had no office in the portfolio no hospitality in the portfolio and only 4% of the portfolio was retail, and that was all fast food drive-through. And that was intentional. Hmm. Um, you know, some investors have said, oh, you're so fortunate. And I say, no, actually, we weren't fortunate. We were very intentional about peeking around the corner. And, you know, retail, office, hospitality, we've shied away from those for a long time. So I'd like to think that when we come into that, we'll be in a similar situation. Being intentional is pretty, pretty critical. Um, any, uh, we can kind of give it a wrap here, but would you like to share uh, Nichols website, uh, main phone number and email, whatever you're comfortable with or nothing. Um, but I'll, I'll let you do that. And then any other sort of closing thoughts or comments you might have, uh, feel free. Um, sure. Our website is, 
www.nicholsnicolsco.com. Um, my email address is cnichols, and again, this is funny spelling, c-n-i-k-o-l-s uh, at nicholsco.com. Okay. Um, and I, I really appreciate your doing this, Kevin. I think very highly of you. I know we've done numerous transactions together, uh, you, even as a sponsor of ours, and I've always admired you, and uh, I, I think you're, you're super smart, and I, I, I really enjoy working with you, and thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you. Was a, that's not the uh, sort of closing comment I was looking for, but I'll take it. Thank you very much. Um, and everybody listening, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode. My my uh, production team tells me I'd be remiss if I don't remind you to please consider uh, putting up a review if you like the exchange. That's, I guess, the catalyst that moves this thing along. And uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. And Carrie, thank you very much. Thank you.